Welcome to Machine Learning. <clears throat> this morning I want to talk about computational biology. I've had uh, talked about a few companies that um, have done some pretty amazing things in the area of biology and the question is, is it at a mature level of development or is it at an infant level? And the answer is infant and here's why. We're just now understanding the protein sequence, the human genotypes, uh, genome and that level of sophistication is opening our world to how the genetics of RNA and DNA work to create variety of life. And so why is protein folding important? Well, the, the different sequences of sugars combine to form uh, a different, would you say, profile or shape, and based on that shape, we get a different, we get a gene manifestation. And so the computer can predict the shape based on the sequence. And that is really kind of an amazing process is to be able to understand protein folding. It was so many different types of folds and what their outcome would be in terms of gene expression. And what you see in the body is different segmentation as expressions of the genes. For example, the formation of the organs or the skeletal system or the nervous system or the respiratory system or the digestive system. These uh, these expressions that can show as different segments in the body. And I, I remember reading about that several years ago, about where and how the body is segmented. And even insects are segmented a certain way, a head, a thorax, the main abdomen area, and lower extremities. And so those are things that uh, I found kind of interesting. And why did it why did it segment that way? Perhaps your your knowledge in biology would explain that. So I'm starting to think about biology again and why and how biology works and how computers can be used to 
understand my own. You know, it's always interesting to, when you take a course in uh, high school or college, and they explain some of the earlier uh, organisms, like the trilobite. A trilobite had a mouth. It had a digestive system. It had locomotion. It had a hard skeletal structure for protection. Almost like a clam. But it was complex. It had a nervous system. It knew how to navigate, similar to a way a lobster navigates. I don't know if it walked backwards. I've never read about whether or not it walked backwards like a, a crab through the water. But you can kind of see why a crab would or a lobster would walk backwards. Um, there are different planes, that, like gliders, for example, that have a narrow wing at the tip for gliding and then the larger wings at the back. So when I think of a lobster moving through the water, I think of it kind of like a, the principle of a glider. And so you might argue that through iterative process, the design adapted for the optimum method of locomotion. And so that's kind of the approach that's being taken in genetic algorithms for explaining movement in bipedal organism, quadrupedic or quadrupeds. And then in the case of the lobster, in a fluid substance called water, why it would walk backwards. Maybe through many iterations, it adapted and found that that was the easy way, easier way or a faster way or a more efficient way to move because efficiency uh, reduces the amount of resource that is consumed. So by being efficient, you, re you consume less resource, and as a result, your chances of survival increase. So there's that fitness equation. Now in genetics, you have crossover, which suggests that there are certain traits from the parents that are are propagated to the posterity or to the descendants. And then you have mutation. But mutation rarely creates a benefit in nature, if never. For example, cancer is a form of mutation, and it leads to the death of the species or to the individual entity of the species. Different 
types of diseases are a result of mutations in the gene. And so crossover is good because it creates new characteristics or traits. But mutation is bad because it breaks the functional sequence in the gene expressions. It changes the shape of the protein folding. It changes the chemical, electrical reactions as the cell begins to replicate its DNA. And in those specific genes, when the ribosome reads the RNA, the DNA. And so you get different types of traits as a result of mutation. And those traits are bad. And so scientists have learned by using this base 69 and RNA sugar sequence to identify these bad sequences, how to splice out those sequences and put a good sequence in. And that is absolutely amazing. Now, the, the ethical side of this would be Will they create super intelligent babies? Will they create babies with uh, unique eye colors, eye colors that are significantly different from the common eye colors that you may see in nature? Will they create super strong babies, etc.? So you could take and analyze the RNA, DNA of the best and then begin to sell those particular traits. So as a parent has a baby, they could designer the baby in such a way that throughout his whole life he has these unique traits of memory, of speed, of power, And so you become more than human. But in some ways, with bionics, we are more than human. We can lift up very heavy objects with minimal effort through the use of equipment assistance. We can use AI brain code to control objects, mechanical objects. And so the machine becomes more of a tool, extension of the mind. The computer always has been an extension of the mind, but we see it as it translates from the mind to a behavior in the physical world. And I think just like cloning, a lot of this technology will probably
probably be shut down. Because if it has a horror factor, then it will never be used. But you can see its its potential if you had like Lou Gehrig's disease and you could use a RNA sequencer to identify the portion of in the chromosome that is would cause Lou Gehrig's disease if you could analyze that at the molecular level and identify that particular characteristics using AI. AI could identify different uh, diseases or potential diseases that are serious in, it, in its identification. And then you could apply a therapy to remove that and that into and that cell then begins to replicate the uh, DNA correctly wouldn't that be of great value and I and I think that the answer is yes I think it is going to be of great value and so I think that the area of computational biology, because of its potential to help individuals overcome disease that would be basically with them for life, is immense. And so there is the element of the creator within us to improve the designs that we uh, that we are are subject to in biology. Then the question is, is, you know, what about programmable DNA? Instead of uh, splicing out bad DNA, programming DNA to perform a certain way. Okay, well, let's look at industry and where they're, they're wanting to create programmable DNA to increase increase production of vaccines or to increase the production in food or to increase the production in livestock. So you could have bigger livestock. You could have uh, larger fruit or more resilient fruit that uh, doesn't bruise as easily or remains crisp longer or uh, is more resistant to uh, 
insect. What effect would that have, food ink have, or in this case, programmable DNA, would that have on the food production system? Well, just, again, as I said, you can't have a horror element to it, otherwise it'll be shut down immediately. But look at the potential for food production. In Sri Lanka, the president decided to cut and remove fertilizers, and they had a 50% drop in food production. So the cost of food went up, and the government subsidies went up, and the government went bankrupt. So it doesn't make sense to take away a technology that increases food production. Um, and so the way we increase food production currently is through fertilizers, nitrogen, the things in biology that plants like and facilitates growth, adequate water, adequate sunlight, etc. And with the programmable DNA, will they be able to increase food production 10%, 20%, or even 50%? Suppose that using uh, programmable DNA in plants that they are able to increase fruit, vegetables, potatoes. Maybe you have a potato that's instead of uh, six ounces, it's uh, 12 ounces. So you've doubled the size of the potato through programmable DNA. These are traits or limitations on the plant that are constrained by nature. The genetics of the nature suggest how big the plant can become. I was surprised when I read about corn, how small corn was when it was grown by the Indians. And Corn is said to be a North American plant. It's a grass. But today, the corn is harvested for food production in almost everything. It is probably widespread as soybeans. It's in your toothpaste. It's in your food. That you. It's in the tortilla. It's in the uh, tortilla. It's in different industrial processes. And so, like soybean, corn is found a place in the market. And one of the strange acts in the early 2000s was when 
report was moved into our fuel cycle. We were consuming ethanol in our gasoline. And so today you actually pay more money for gasoline that does not have ethanol. But yet, as corn began to be a part of the fuel percentage, the cost of fuel did not go down significantly. And what it did was create shortages in corn used for food. And so prices went up. And it, perhaps that was the design to begin with, is to increase the cost of different uh, foods to increase the profit margins. And so I think that when I when I look at that move, I ask myself, why didn't they use algae, blue algae, to produce biodiesel? And you look at the cost of diesel today. There is no biodiesel that's being sold significantly. There is no companies producing massive amounts of biodiesel at half the cost of regular diesel. And so the regulations have somewhat strangled competition. Biodiesel burns cleaner. And yet, there's no incentive on the market yet to produce it in mass because of strong regulation against it. Even though in Mexico you could, in the hot deserts, you could produce biodiesel as low as $10 a barrel. The move is to move off of carbon-based fuels and to move towards more expensive battery-based transportation. I was looking at a couple of charts that were showing that roughly today, maybe 2% of all vehicles are electric in the U.S. And probably lower than that, less than, I would think, 1%. And the electric vehicles are very expensive. Only the rich can afford them right now. So the electric vehicle experience is exclusively for the rich. And why didn't Toyota or Honda introduce the fuel cell as the the future vehicle and begin to buy different 
filling stations across the U.S. or across the world and begin to provide one or two bays per gas station in in the thousands or tens of thousands creating a refueling network. Well, I think in large part is because of the government's decision that electric vehicles were, ne were more efficient for energy gas per mile or energy per mile. And so by releasing that from the Department of Transportation, then companies were saying electric has to be the answer to our problems. I, uh, I'm always amazed that we live in a time where there's any scarcity. <laughs> 